Men and women of grace, uh, periodically during Matt's sabbatical, we have the privilege of uh, hosting uh, some guest speakers that are outside of the Grace family. And today we have the privilege of having Dr. David Daniels with us. Uh, Dr. Daniels has been with us a number of times. It's been a while on a Sunday, but he's done a number of our men's retreats and even spoken here on, on Sundays. If you haven't heard him, you're in for a treat this morning. The man loves the word of God and loves to teach it. He's the senior pastor at Central Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. And so if you know people up there or you end up one there, up there one of these days, I would highly recommend that church. It's a great church. So if you would, please uh, welcome Dr. David Daniels. Thank you, my brother. Love spending time with the men of grace uh, at the men's retreats I've been able to do and grateful to be here that, you'd, that Matt would let me come and speak to his tribe. It's great to be with you. I, I often say as a lead pastor, preaching pastor, sometimes I wish you could sing all the songs after I preach. Because this morning, the, the songs that we sang were, were really so appropriate and set the stage so much for where I want to take you this morning. So let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord to season our heart, prepare us to hear His Word, and then we're going to dive into a fascinating chapter of Scripture. Our Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for the, the opportunity we've had to be in your presence. I, I think about the God who invited the people uh, to come to the mountain and to meet with him and that you would descend from the heavens and you would meet your people there. I think of the text in Hebrews that, that says that we can come confidently and, and frequently into your presence before the throne of grace. And so we do come this morning. And as we open up your word, Father, my prayer is, is that you would lead us. I pray that this message would speak to the hearts of people who, who need to hear this particular truth. And I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray this to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 14? We're going to be looking at the tail end of 13, looking at Exodus chapter 14. Our church has been walking through, journeying through the book of Exodus this year, and it's been a fascinating discovery for us. It's hard to imagine it's been three and a half months since the Russian forces invaded Ukraine. And the devastation has been unbelievable. What's been really an act of territorial aggression has displaced some 14 million people in Ukraine out of their homes into other cities and even beyond that. The Russian forces have largely targeted civilian outposts throughout Ukraine, decimating cities like Mariupol and Odessa and Kharkiv and Kherson and Kiev and just various places. It's, the devastation has been incredible. And, and as you and I have watched, we've seen Ukrainian armies that have been courageous and resilient, but they've been largely outnumbered. They've been overpowered by Russian forces. The, the future does not look terribly hopeful. And along the way, the, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, has come on global television and he's asked the question, who will fight for us? Maybe you've seen him in one of those speeches asking the question, why are we out here alone? Who will come and fight for us? And it's a great question. It's just a little difficult and delicate to answer because, you see, Ukraine is not part of NATO. NATO is a 30-member state alliance of countries that have banded together with a guarantee that they would come to one another's assistance. And if, the, if Ukraine had been part of NATO, the minute that Russian forces came across the, the country lines there, there would have been 30 nations that would ban, have banded together and would have come in and would have supported Ukraine. But when there is no covenant commitment to one another, 
there is no obligation to protect. That's an important principle that I want you to remember this morning. When there is no covenant commitment to one another, there is no obligation or responsibility to protect. And that's important for us as we study this text because this morning is really not about Ukraine or Russia. It's about you. It's about me. It's about us. And the question, when things get difficult in life, who will fight for us? That's a question that some of you have been asking recently. I remember I, I served at a church here in Austin, and I was in 1999, I was an associate pastor of a church in central Austin. We were looking to purchase property in south Austin to build a larger campus. And the piece of property that we found that would have fit all of our, all of our conditions, we discovered in the search for property that Austin has some pretty pretty tight restrictions on land use. I don't think that's true anymore, but it used to be true. And when you went out looking for a piece of property, you could only cover about 15 or 17% of your property with impervious cover, buildings, parking lots, that sort of thing. And so you have to buy a lot of property in order to build a, just a modest-sized building. We found a piece of property, and the city of Austin guaranteed us that the piece of property we were looking at was grandfathered under a previous clause in which we would be able to build some 30 to 35% of this property we could develop. Well, that was great. It was perfect for us. So we spent the money and purchased the piece of property. And the ink was hardly dry on the contract when the city of Austin came back and said, oh, never mind, it's actually under the new restriction. You can only build on 15%. Oh, we were frustrated. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I mean, we felt like, a, we felt like a, a little shepherd David facing the Goliath of the city of Austin. We put together our, our engineers and our architects and our attorneys, and we assembled this force of people. But even going in and fighting something like the, the government of a city, I remember thinking as a pastor, Lord, you, we're going to need you to step up and fight for your people. And maybe you've been in a situation recently in your life in which you've been saying, Lord, I, I need you to come and fight for me. Maybe you've been victimized or you've been taken advantage of. Maybe you've been persecuted for your faith. Maybe you have been dealt with unjustly or unfairly. It's been a boss. It's been, it's been somebody in your family. It's been some, a neighbor down the street, somewhere along the way, and you found yourself entangled in something like you're like, I, I can't do this. I need God to step in and take care of business. Tiffany and I have a, a good dear friend of ours who she and her husband were married for many years until he, he, he was caught having an affair with several different women and, and ended their marriage. But along the way of the divorce, he not only violated his covenant fidelity to his wife, but along the way of the divorce, he made sure that she walked away from the marriage with as little as she could possibly get. He hurt her once and then hurt her all the way through the divorce. And I remember my friend crying out, just going, Lord, I got no resource. I can't do this. Are you going to come and fight for me? Or maybe you're a young couple and you've been going through international adoption and COVID has been the worst for that. And your paperwork is sitting on the desk of some person on the other side of the planet. And they don't care about you and they don't care about your kid as much as you care about your kid. And all you need is a rubber stamp. That's all you need. I just need the final stamp. And you can't get your process finished for this adoption. All you want is your little boy or little girl that you've met a couple of times. It's like, Lord, I need you to step in. I, I, I got, you got to fight for me. You've got to show up. 
or, or maybe, I've heard stories of this, people that decided instead of going on vacation at COVID because you couldn't do that, they'd spend their money and do a little renovation. You've hired a guy to come over and his team to redo the kitchen. He's about half done and you can't get him to answer a phone call, can't get him to answer a text. You can't get him to show up and finish the job. He got most of the money and about half of the work and you're sitting with materials all over your garage and kitchen. You can't get it done. You're like, Lord, listen, I need you to step in. I need, I, you, I, I, I've expended all the resources I've got trying to find this guy, trying to get justice, trying to make this work. Lord, I need you to fight for me. I got great news for you. It's the opposite of what's happening in the Ukraine. When there is no covenant commitment, there is no responsibility to protect. But there's a principle I want you to understand and walk away with if you don't hear anything else today, and it's this. Because of his covenant commitment and because of the desire for his own glory, God will fight for you. He will fight for you. That is a promise to God's people, and that's going to be a huge encouragement for, I hope, more than just a few of you today. This brings us to our text, the end of Exodus chapter 13 and Exodus 14. A little backstory will help us understand kind of what's going on here. For the previous 12 chapters in the book of Exodus, God's people have been under the oppressive thumb of Egypt. They've been living, uh, the, the Jews have been living as, as refugees and slaves in a country not their own. They've been remembering and thinking about their homeland that had been promised to their, their forefather Abraham, the land of Canaan. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know that God raised up a man named Moses, also known as Charlton Heston, and he sends him back into Egypt. Some of you, if you're less than 30 years old, you have no idea what I just said, but he sends him into Egypt, and Moses becomes God's chosen deliverer to bring God's people out of Egypt. And of course, what happens in those chapters is a power struggle, a Pharaoh who's out of control, the Passover, and finally, Pharaoh at the 10th plague cries uncle. He opens his hands and he allows God's people to leave Egypt. They have now found a way out. And one and a half to two million Israelites, that's the estimate, now leave Egypt with the gold and silver of Egypt under their arms. They're carrying the bones of Joseph who generations before had brought them into this beautiful turned God-forsaken country. And they are leaving Ramses and they're heading to Succoth and their eyes are set on Canaan as they make their way out. And then Pharaoh wakes up. Several days later, his alarm clock goes off. He sits up in bed and it occurs to him that he has just lost his entire workforce. There will be no more economic development in Egypt. There will be no more projects that are completed. The military strength of Egypt is now declined. Egypt will no longer have its place among the countries of the world. And so Pharaoh, his heart hardened, decides to pursue the people of God. This brings us to chapter 14 and verse 7. Pharaoh took 600 of the best chariots along with his other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harahoth, opposite of Baal-Zephon. So, so let's understand what's going on. The Israelites have only been gone for a short time. They've come to the edge of the great sea. 
There's nowhere to go, but they're not necessarily concerned as they're camped out there. And suddenly, a few of them begin to hear the rumble of the earth, and they turn around, and on the horizon, they can see the dust being kicked up from chariot wheels as the Egyptian armies come close to them. They've got the sea in front of them and soldiers behind them. That's a picture, I think, of the kind of difficulty that sometimes you and I find ourselves in. Sometimes the battle comes from behind. It's our past that catches up with us that becomes so difficult for us to manage. Sometimes our challenge is in front of us, some impending impossibility that we can see. Sometimes our difficulty is people, and sometimes our difficulty is just circumstances in life. But whatever it is, the people of God are trapped, and they are terrified. They don't They don't handle this threat very well. In fact, notice verses 10, 11, and 12. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now you've got to have great confidence in the people of God by what they say. Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us here in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been a whole lot better for us to serve the Egyptians than it would be to die in the desert. I can just see Moses. Oy vey. You guys are killing me. Really? It would have been better off to stay in Egypt? That's what you really think? You know, God's people can be pretty fickle, present company included. (laughs) We can wake up at sunrise and thank the Lord for all the great things that he's done. My God, he's a God, he's an awesome God. You know, we're so, we love him so much. He's done so many great things for us. And by lunch, our hearts are turned. We're wringing our hands. We're afraid. We're disappointed. We're complaining. God, what have you done for me recently? The people of God have forgotten the incredible things that God did back in Egypt. And they cry out to Moses. And Moses, who's a man of greater faith than they are, it, Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Isn't that a great word? If you've got one of those old-fashioned Bibles that has pages in it, you might just take your pencil and just underline that statement. The Lord will fight for you. Put a little asterisk next to it. It's a promise of God, and it's a promise that's not just found here in the book of Exodus. In fact, this promise is found in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 30. It's found in Deuteronomy 3.22. It's found in Deuteronomy 20, verse 4. It's found in Joshua chapter 10, verse 14. It's found in Joshua 23.10. It's found over and over and over again because God didn't just fight for his people then. God fights, and he fought, and he continues to fight for his people today. That is great news that the Lord will fight for you. So I'm going to answer some questions. First question is how? How does God fight for his people? We say that the Lord will fight for you. He's on your side. What does it mean that the Lord will fight for you? Well, we look in our text in in Exodus 14, and we see that the Lord fights for his people several ways. Number one, the Lord will fight for you by guiding you along. That's the first principle I want you to see. He will fight for you by guiding you along. Back in chapter 13, at the end of chapter 13, we read this, that by day the Lord went ahead of his people in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or by night. 
And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of his people. What an awesome sight. The minute God's people leave Egypt, I'm sure they kind of stepped outside the gates and go and went, oh, where do we go now? Where are we supposed to go? And suddenly there was this this fascinating, this beautiful appearance in the sky, a pillar, a cloud, a column of cloud by day and fire at night. And, and, And somehow they knew that this was the presence of the Lord and that the Lord went ahead of his people and said, come on, come on, follow me. And as the people began, wherever the cloud went, wherever the fire went, the Lord moved to the left, they moved to the left, the Lord moved to the right. You know the song, they moved to the right. I kind of wonder if sometimes the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit up in heaven went, watch this. You know, y'all walk over here. Now you walk over here. Now you're in the cloud and the pillar just moving like this. But the people knew that God is ahead of us and that if we, that he's going to stay ahead of us and we just follow him and he'll lead us where we need to go. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 17, it says that when the people left Egypt, that the Lord did not take them around the shorter route to the north, the Via Maris, the way of the sea. He didn't take them along the shorter route. would have been shorter, but they would have encountered enemies immediately in front of them. So he took them a longer way. Sometimes God will do that. If you follow the Lord, sometimes the way that he will lead you will be a longer way. Sometimes the way he will lead you will be a a way that is not intuitive. You're like, why are we going this direction? The Lord just says, just see the cloud, see the fire, just keep walking. I mean, in many ways, the Lord operates like Google Maps on the good days. You know, you put in your destination, this is where I want to go, and the maps have already discerned that there's traffic ahead, that there's an obstacle, that the road comes down to one lane, that you need to exit here and take a little detour. Because Google Maps has a way of seeing the big picture. You and I can only see what's what out, right out in the front of the windshield, but Google Maps can see the big picture. God in His sovereignty can always see the big picture. So if we'll trust Him, He says, I'll show you. I'll show you the best way. I'll show you the best way. Now, the people of God had a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Today, God gives two other, two different pillars for his people. Do you know what those are? First, he gives us his scripture. Scripture is a pillar that God gives us to guide us along, to show us the way to go. He gives us scripture. In fact, Psalm 119, 105 says what? Thy words are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? You've heard that verse before. God gives us Scripture to be able to light and say, come on, this is the way that you, this is how you're supposed to respond to what this person has said to you that hurts you. This is the way that you're supposed to parent your children. This, this is the way that you're to deal with this difficulty, this compromising difficulty at work. This is the way. You just follow my word and it will, it will lead you. And along with this pillar of God's Scripture, God has given us the pillar of His Holy Spirit. Those two things work in tandem. They come together. Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to give you my spirit. And what's my spirit going to do? He's going to guide you into all truth. So you have my scripture in front of you. You have my spirit inside of you. 
and both the Scripture and the Spirit are going to come together, and if you will be men and women of the Word, and if you will be men and women who walk and are sensitive to the Spirit of God, well, listen, God is going to fulfill His promise to guide you along in life and show you where to go. That's one of the ways He fights for you, is by guiding us through the pillars that we have today. The second way that God fights for His people, first, He fights for us by guiding you along. Secondly, He fights for you by giving you a way. Now, not giving you a way, but giving you a way. The people are standing there at the Red Sea. Maybe their toes are just at the edge of the water as it's washing up on the, on the shoreline. And and the Lord says to Moses in chapter 14, verse 15, tell the Israelites to move on. Can you imagine that? Tell them to giddy up, let's go. The people are going, um, <clears throat> okay, but I mean, you got this ocean in front of you. How in the world? We know the direction that we're supposed to go, but the way ahead just seems absolutely impossible for us to get there. So God says to Moses in verse 16, you raise your staff and you stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites will be able to go through the sea on dry ground. Don't miss this, church. Because in this episode, God did not just show the way he made a way. In your life, and my life, God doesn't just say, this is the way you're to go, but He actually makes it possible for you and I to go in the way that God intends for us to go. And sure enough, as soon as Moses raised the staff, the waters begin to part. Verse 17 says that He sent a, he, he sent a, a, a breeze uh, all night long, verses 17 through 21, He sent a, a wind that not only blew the waters back, but took the ground and dried it out so that one and a half to two million people could cross through to the other side. The best estimates of historians looking at where the Israelites would have likely have crossed the Red Sea, you know how far it was? The best estimation is it was between seven to 11 miles that God's people, when they stepped into the water, they, walked, they marched all night long, making their way across the sea. They couldn't see the end, but God had opened up and He had made possible the impossible in front of them. God is in the habit of removing obstacles in life. He is in the habit of coming to your aid and opening up the waters and moving through the impossibilities so that you can walk strongly with the Lord. He has a way of getting rubber stamps on paperwork. He has a way of, of having jobs pop up at just the right time. He has a way of, you know, in my experience, moving people out of churches, helping them discover God's will somewhere else. He has a way of just moving the pieces around in life if we will trust Him and depend on Him along the way to make a way. My wife experienced this uh, during the Ice Mageddon a year ago. Uh, my wife runs a, a conference for teenage girls, and for seven years they've done a national conference in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
Well, her conference was scheduled the weekend after Mageddon. So on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, everybody's iced in. Nobody's got electricity. Pipes are bursting at our church where we host this conference for 1,500 girls. Airplanes can't land at DFW Airport where all of the speakers are supposed to fly in so that they can host this conference that's not only for girls there but all over the world, live-streamed all over the world. It is a train wreck. And I remember my wife, she, she's got so much more faith than I. She just said, we're just going to trust the Lord. He's just going to have to make a way. I said, well, ice is going to have to melt a whole lot faster than it's melting right now for you to be able to do a conference on Friday. And pipes are going to have to be fixed. And I, I just don't know how this happens. But God made a way. Because somebody knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And North Point Church in Atlanta said, well, you can come use our facility. To which I responded, me of little faith, yeah, that's great. You're in Atlanta. Okay? The girls are coming here. You're in Atlanta. And they said, well, come on. They opened up their facility and they provided worship band and all the flights were rerouted and Tiffany and her team took a flight, got the only flight out of DFW and landed in Atlanta and had the most unbelievable conference because God made a way. He, he accomplished the, she looks back on that. She goes, I, it was a, it was so nerve wracking. She said, but I would rather have that experience where I see God show up and do what only God can do than, any, than have it any other way. I wonder what impossibility you have going on right now. You're thinking, I, have, I, I don't have any idea how this works out. This is impossible. God loves to show up in the impossible. I think Jesus sometimes waited until things got really bad before he showed up on the scene so that he could show that he was the God of the impossible. And if you've got impossibility in front of you, you need to know that the Lord can open the path. That doesn't mean that he'll open every single path all the time. It may be on his time frame. He may bring you through some difficulty and hardship to get there because that's the way that the Lord cultivates faith. But I can guarantee you that if his glory and the gospel are at stake, you can be sure that the Lord will make a way. How does he fight for his people? By guiding you along, by giving you a way forward. And number three, by guarding you against. By guarding you against the enemy. This is where he really fights for you because as the waters opened up for the Israelites, one and a half to two million of them crossing through seven to 11 miles, walking to the other side of the, of the Red Sea, we read that an angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. Now, isn't this a great picture? This is a, this is a picture of fatherly protection. The angel of the Lord that had been in front of Israel saying, come on, everybody walk this way. Once they got in the path of the sea, that angel of the Lord went and stood behind them between the Israelites and the Egyptian armies. I had an experience like this in Moscow, Russia. I took in 1995, I took 12 college students, my wife, my two children that were one and a half and four years old, and we went to Moscow for six weeks on a mission trip. And about the only way to get around Moscow, Russia is on the subway, the metro that's underground. And it is a mess. 
It's an unbelievable mess. And when you go down to the platform to get on a metro, you and everyone else in Moscow is wanting to get on that one train. And when the train pulls up to the platform, the doors open, the, you know, two million people on the train car are trying to get out, and the two million people on the platform are trying to get in. And I begin to discover along the way that the best thing I could do for our team is to stand in the doorway, brace my feet, okay, get a little leverage with my shoulder, and get my students and my wife and my small children, and my mother-in-law was on that trip. I'd go, you're on your own. But shit, we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to get everybody on the train. And I got, I got Russians pushing against me trying to in the train, and I'm turning around like, you, you, like you, really want, you really want to do this? I know I'm not that imposing, okay? I, you know, about 150 pounds soaking wet. I look like I got French fries hanging out of my sleeves. But I, was, I would just brace myself, and I'm like, you're not getting on this train until all my my people, my tribe, get on this train. And I think that's a little bit what the angel of the Lord was standing between Israel and the Egyptian armies going, come on, come on, you want to you deal with this? That fatherly protection of God's people. And then once the Israelites had crossed over, what does the text tell us? That God said to the Egyptians, hey, now it's your turn. And the Egyptian armies made their way into the seabed the wheels of their chariots started to come off. They were thrown into utter chaos. And they even cried out in verse 25, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And at that moment, the water came down on top of them, and the promise of God, you'll never have to deal with these Egyptians again, was fulfilled. God protected his people from the enemy. Now, what does this mean for you and me today? You and I can count on God to hear our cries and to be for us against the enemies on earth. Bullies in the schoolyard, abusive spouses, unjust employers, we can count on that God, God hears that, that He is for us, that He intends to be the defender of us on the, in the wars that you and I fight on earth. But make no mistake about it. Wherever we find ourselves on earth, battling whatever enemies we experience on earth, you and I can be confident that God will always and finally rescue us from the enemies of heaven. Do you understand that? We have an enemy in the heavenly places. That's what Scripture tells us. His name is Satan and his demons. And the score has already been determined of that battle. See, all we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 and the story of redemption, the start of the story of redemption. When the Bible says that there's a seed of a woman who's going to be born, that's going to be Jesus. And he's going to have this cosmic battle between him and the forces of evil. That's Satan. And the forces of evil will clip his heel, but Jesus will crush his head. And of course, Satan, who can read Scripture as well, didn't think that he would lose. So when the Son of God was born... Satan set his destructive plan in motion, sent Jesus to the cross. And when Jesus died, Satan thought, the victory's all mine. I win. For three days, he celebrates until what? Easter morning, resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death, 
sin, and Satan. The victory was his, and everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ shares the same victory. That's a guarantee. And that victory will be realized one day when Jesus will come back, because he will come back assuredly as he came the first time. And the Bible says that he will ride into history already a victor. He will ride in and he will defeat all the forces, all the enemies of God. And his people, those that have trusted in Jesus Christ, will stand with him untouched, unharmed, forever protected in the presence of God because Jesus wins, we win. The score has already been determined. And so, church, whatever happens on earth and whatever wars that you feel you win or you don't feel like you're winning as much and you feel like you can't, you can't stand, know that there is an end that has already been written in which those that trust, that are the people of God, already stand with Him in victory. So I mentioned to you today that we had three questions. How? Does God fight for His people? He fights for His people by guiding you along, by giving you away, and by guarding you against. But there's two other very quick questions I want to answer. I want to answer the question, why? Why would God rescue you today? Why would God hear your cries and come to you and help you out? Why would He do that? And somebody might say, well, look at me. I mean, we are so lovable and adorable. God just thinks the world of us. He just thinks we're the greatest, and so he always wants to help us. Well, let's be, let's understand. God does love you. God does have a covenant commitment to his people, all right? God is a father to his children. All those things are true. But there is an even more compelling reason why God helps his people and that you and I can be sure that he will be on our side, that he will fight for you. And you know what? It's not because of our goodness. It is because of his glory. You see, three times in chapter 14, in verse 4, in verse 17, in verse 18, the Lord says this, I will gain glory for myself. To which you might say, well, I thought you were fighting for Israel. Well, I am fighting for Israel, but I'm fighting for Israel so that I may get glory for myself. So when I rescue Israel, it is for my namesake. And when I free Israel, it will be for my namesake. And when I'm faithful to Israel, it will be for my namesake. And when I redeem Israel, it will be for my namesake. I will do everything that I do down here so that the people here will lift their eyes up and be astonished at who I am. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that God is fighting for his glory. And let me tell you why. If I know that God cares so much for his namesake and for his glory, and the way that he glorifies himself is by loving me, by being faithful to me, by showing up in my life, by being powerful for me, by redeeming me, by doing all the things that he does in my life, then I can be confident that God will be at work for my good because I know he's at work for his glory. It gives me confidence. I want God. If God is only at work because I'm good looking, then I'm in trouble. But if God is at work for the sake of his name, then I can be confident that he will always show up at just the right time in my life. That's the why, which brings me to the what. And we'll end on this today. What should we do? 
If you're facing some insurmountable obstacle today, some difficulty challenge along the way, and you're like, oh, it's just too much. I feel like I'm in a battle. I feel like I'm in the thick of it with my kids, with my spouse, with my boss, with my neighbor, with my extended family. I feel like I'm in, the, I feel like I'm in over my head. What should I do? What should be my response? Well, in this text, there were two responses that God gave to his people. Faith and follow. Faith and follow. It's very simple. He said, first of all, he said, I want you, my people, I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith. I want you to stand firm. That is, don't be swayed by the rhetoric you hear in the world. Don't be swayed by what you read on the 24-hour news channels. Don't be swayed or taken off guard by the voices in your head. Don't be swayed by strange theology. Don't be swayed by what you read on social media. Don't be swayed back and forth. You stand firm in what you know. That's why it's good for us to be people of the word. Stand firm in what you know and be still. Stop pacing, stop panicking, stop chewing your fingernails, anxious. When Faith is about what happens up here. God says, I want you to trust me. Trust me. Do you trust me? Trust me. I want you to stand firm and be still. That's faith. But then he also says to his people, I want you to follow. You see, standing firm and being still doesn't mean do nothing. Some people say that. Just let go. Just don't do anything. Let God take the wheel. Well, I understand that. But the Israelites at some point had to pick up their baskets, pick up their silver and gold, grab their kids, and head across the seabed. They had to look and ask the question, where is God going and how are we going to follow him? We're going to see where he's going, and right now we can't see any further than just right there, so let's just go right there. And then hopefully God will give us new directions and he'll show us where we're supposed to turn. And they just had to trust in that. And so church, let me encourage you in the hard times, if you're in hard times right now, trust in God. That's what's going on here in the head and the heart. And then wherever he leads, if he invites you to take a risk, to have a conversation, to stop this job and take that one, to make this turn, Say, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. I'd rather be found following you than anything else. I love the words of Psalm 18. Here's a good psalm to leave you with today. The Lord is my rock. He is my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. And so I'll call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. Because of his covenant commitment, for the sake of his glory, you and I can be sure of this. God sees us, he hears us, and he will fight for us. Would you pray with me? Father, as we work through this text, one of the things that I'm grateful for is I'm grateful to be known as your people. There's such a difference between how you treated your people and those who were enemies. And I thank you, Lord, that you call people today in an ongoing way to come be a part of the family of God. And that's simply by faith, by trusting you it's a picture of your grace. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody listening to this message that has not yet 
discovered what it means to be your people, that they would recognize Jesus as Savior and they would trust him today. And for the, the many of us here that say, well, we do know Jesus, we are the people of God, Lord, would you help us to trust you, to have faith, stand firm and be still, and at the same time to follow you wherever you lead? What confidence we need today, Lord, that you have fought and that you will fight for your people. We know you're for us because you're for your glory. And so today, we exhale, and we say to you, Lord, we trust you. Come, Lord Jesus, come fight for your people, we ask in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.